Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the PR Week podcast, Beyond the Noise. I am Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society. And today I'm joined by PR Week Editor-in-Chief, Danny Rogers. Hi, Frankie. So John has been away on holiday, so it's just the two of us today. And we are taking a slightly different tack and dedicating this episode to a PR review of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee that took place over last weekend. And we will also look at what this means for the overall reputation of the royal family and its communication strategy moving forward. A subject that, Danny, I know you've written about extensively in your book, Campaigns That Shook the World. I'm sure that we can all agree over the last few years, it has been really challenging for the royal family. From Prince Harry and Meghan's departure from royal service and their tell-all interview with Oprah Winfrey, to Prince Andrew's association with Jeffrey Epstein and the court case with Virginia Dufresne, and to the recent disastrous Caribbean tour where the typically PR-savvy Duke and Duchess of Cambridge made a number of big PR missteps. So, Danny, as we went into the Jubilee weekend, what position do you think the royal family were in? Well, YouGov released some results uh, just before the Jubilee saying there's been a dramatic decline in support for the monarchy in the decades since the Queen's last Jubilee, the Diamond Jubilee. Polling ahead of the celebrations showed fewer people supported the monarchy and among young people, an equal number supported replacing the monarchy with an elected head of state. In 2012, when the Queen marks 60 years on the throne, 73% of Britons said they supported the monarchy. But in 2022, the same polling company reports that support for the monarchy had dropped by 11 points to just 62%. And one in five of those questioned wanted Britain to become a republic and have a head of state like a president. So that's quite a big drop in popularity points in the last 10 years since the Queen's last jubilee. What do you think is driving that? Is it, is it really everything that's happened over the last couple of years? I think the monarchy's got a, a reputational challenge and, and a big 
problem on its hands. I mean, in my book, as you mentioned earlier, Frankie, I wrote about the period from 97 through to 2011, after the death of Diana and right up to the marriage of William and Kate. And in 1997, the monarchy had a huge problem. You know, almost a majority of people wanted a republic in this country. Since then, the the monarchy has recovered uh, to a large extent, thanks largely to the the royal princes and all the work they did in the run up to 2011 and so on. But but since then, as you as you said, they've had a number of reputational challenges, and I think, you know, reinventing themselves for the younger generation is the big challenge. And as you say, the princes really helped reinvent the image of the royal family, probably especially for for young people. And they really get well. Prince Harry, William, and Kate came together on mental health, which was very strong. Yeah, that was brilliant. I think really the the, the break in their relationship has really not been helpful. It's been a major problem for them, I think. You know, the split between Harry and William. You know, the the country loves seeing them together after the tragic death of their mother and the fact that they seem to support each other and pull together for for the good of Britain. And then when they had this schism over the last few years. I mean, that's a, that's a big blow to the monarchy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there were obviously the calls around racism and the perceptions around Meghan and what that meant for 18 to 24s was potentially quite divisive and polarising. So moving forward into the Jubilee, I mean, this is such a big moment, isn't it, for the royal family in terms of how they're setting themselves up for the future and obviously everything that's that's happened in the last couple of years. So let's look at the highlights. I mean, what do you think went well? I mean, we obviously started with the first day, the trooping of the colour, f- fairly standard, you know, expected. But I think it was really as we went into the Thanksgiving service on the Friday at St Paul's that... Those were the potential PR bombs that were going to go off. I thought it was an absolute masterstroke. Obviously, there was, you know, sadness that the, the Queen wasn't able to be there, but, you know, understanding and sympathy. But really, I mean, I think just the idea that Prince Andrew was even going to be there and the fact that, you know, he was um, fortuitously, if you can say fortuitously, he he obviously had uh, covid um, confirmed on the morning. And I think everybody just allowed that to pass. Well, I don't think anybody really believed he did have COVID, but I agree it was a, a PR masterstroke to keep him away from events. Absolutely. It was a bit like having the bad uncle that you didn't want to come for Christmas and everybody knows how that feels. So we all let that go. And, you know, I don't think anybody wanted there to be negative press for the Queen um, around that service or the Jubilee, in fact. Then, of course, there was the entrance of Harry and Meghan, and and that really was quite nail-biting, I would say. Um, They went up the stairs. There were, I think, oh, no, actually, I'm sorry. It was as they came out of um, St. Paul's that there was a mixed reception of boos and cheers, which I think for Prince Harry must have been quite hard. But actually inside the service, yes, they were not exactly next to the royal family, but I think that went well. I did note that Meghan had a fixed smile throughout the whole of the proceedings because she knows, you know, just just one glimmer of her having a face that looked like she wasn't happy and that would have been all over the front pages. Yeah, I agree. It was very well orchestrated with Harry and Meghan's appearance at events. And um, there clearly is a definite break there with the rest of the family, but... I guess it's been damage limitation in terms of the Jubilee. 
And it felt like maybe the start of a healing process. And and while they weren't necessarily going to be at everything, that they were at the right service at the right time. And, and that felt like a good call. Possibly. We will see. I doubt the Harry and Meghan story is going to go away anytime soon with the tabloids. I definitely don't think it will. And I think the fact that they left early on the Sunday was maybe not a great idea. It sort of felt like they had their last moment with the issue of the picture from Lilibet's first birthday party. I thought she looked remarkably like the Queen. (laughs) I think that the important thing here is that um, is the picture of the stripped down royal family on the balcony without Harry and Meghan, as if the monarchy is now saying... This is it. This is the core team going forward. Harry and Meghan ain't in it. Well, I think originally they were in the pared down royal family, weren't they? Um, and, and that's exactly what Charles's strategy has been. But it was made very clear, especially with the picture at the end of um, the weekend. That They've been sacked. Yeah. I mean, they resigned themselves, didn't they? <laughs> so I think we both agree the Thanksgiving service at St Paul's was delivered brilliantly from a reputation and communications perspective. We then went into the Saturday where there was the concert and um, kicking off with a a standout moment, which was clearly Paddington Bear. I think the Paddington Bear moment was a stroke of genius by the royal family. And I understand that Buckingham Palace worked with the BBC and and a production company on this. I think what's so good about it is it it creates an impression that the Queen has always had a great sense of humour. It makes her feel more human. And really importantly, it positions the royal family as relevant to kids and and younger people, which is a big reputational challenge. Absolutely. I mean, you just always felt with the Queen that you just wanted to have that private moment with the Queen where you got to say hello to her. And it felt like a private moment for everybody that they were invited into that tea table with her and Paddington Bear. I think it was really special. And I think it all took us back to 2012 as well. Yes, there were certainly echoes of London 2012 Olympics where the Queen obviously met James Bond and was seen supposedly jumping out of a a helicopter. So uh, these are not new ideas, but it worked in 2012 and it worked brilliantly again. It was fantastic. I sat at home. I thoroughly enjoyed the concert. I thought the diverse range of music was amazing. I thought diversity's performance was actually the standout one for me. And I was really happy that Diana Ross didn't fall off the steps, which I was worried about at one point. I think the next big standout moment really was the the replay of the Queen's COP26 speech to that magnificent light show that was across Buckingham Palace. And then was he Prince William standing up and making the speech that he did about this being the really critical moment for the planet. What did you think of that? So I must admit, I wasn't around on Saturday night and I didn't watch it, Frankie. Um, However, talking to my mother, who's in her 80s, she loved it. And she said the light show was incredible. And I think that's really important that the royal family has appealed to the whole of Britain. And we can talk about more about that in, in a moment. But I think generally the choreography and the production values and the way the whole event proceeded was a, was a triumph. It was. And I think it just felt epic. 
And I think, you know, I think that's a really important part of the Jubilee that it made everybody feel like they were also a part of history. And I think obviously after everything that we've been through over the last couple of years to actually feel that sense of unity around that moment and around that celebration felt really good. And also Prince Charles, I think he was really well received with with his speech that came after Prince William. So I think it was all orchestrated with perfection. Notably, no Harry and Meghan, however, with them seated um, at the event. So moving on, we then get to Sunday with the bonkers pageant, which was British eccentricity at its best. I think there was even a bus of national treasures at one point with Cliff Richard on it, which made me laugh. And the royals seemed to be having an absolute blinder of a time, um, probably quite relieved it was nearly all over. And then, as you say, we then led really up to that final picture, which was the the pair down royal family and the arrival back of the Queen on the balcony with her thanks to everybody, which felt like the absolute perfect finish. Yes, I think the whole thing was beautifully choreographed and went extremely well. My scepticism perhaps comes in where does this leave the royal family? Because it's a beautiful uh, tribute to the Queen and the 70 years on the throne. I don't think there's many people in the country who don't truly admire Queen Elizabeth. But what next? And this is the big challenge. And one of the things I think is that a big challenge for the royal family is to reinvent itself both for the younger generation and also beyond the southeast of England. And I do think it might have been clever to hold some events outside London, maybe in Scotland, maybe in different parts of of England or Wales. And, you know, this is why it's limited in terms of a communications exercise. Yes, I agree. Though what I would say, the multicultural representation on broadcast television throughout from London tonight all the way through to the BBC, I thought was impeccable. It was excellent. Um, They were, you know, the the media were directed to all the right street parties, all the right community groups. Um, You know, multicultural voices were prevalent throughout the weekend. I did note, however, that the the piece from Scotland in Glasgow, slightly less positive. Um, I think, you know, the Glasgow City Council said they weren't going to spend a bean on celebrating um, the Queen's Jubilee. So that sense of sort of England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales kind of coming together, I think that was less there throughout the Jubilee weekend. Would you agree? I think there's a big problem in the reach of the royal family, both in terms of encompassing Scotland and Wales as part of the, you know, part of Britain, but also, of course, the Commonwealth. And you've got a country like Australia, which has always been a fairly iconic part of the Commonwealth, where you've got a prime minister now who's calling for a republic. So we have to remember the royal family not only matters to the people of Britain, but it has to appeal to the whole Commonwealth if it's to retain its influence and power. And how it's going to manage its colonial history, you know, the role of that colonial history within slavery, for example, that I know that Prince William spoke very sensitively about during the Caribbean tour, but they've got some really big challenges ahead for them, possibly even more so on the international stage than the domestic one. Yes, I believe that many people in the royal family have their heart in the right place and they know what the right strategy is. Whether or not they can achieve that is more in doubt, I think, because I'm not sure it can be done. So moving forward, I mean, I think there was just such 
warmth towards the Queen for serving the country for the last 70 years. I thought there were some really interesting news reports, actually in inner city London communities, talking about the importance of her as a woman, as a leader. She's obviously been a mother. She's a grandmother. She's embodied values that arguably have been lost in leadership, as we've seen um, over over recent years. And, and therefore, you know, that that's why she was going to receive that level of um, respect and admiration and thanks. Moving forward with Prince Charles, we potentially have a very different type of king. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And leader and monarch. What do you feel about it? Can you envision what this is going to be like? With you know, We obviously saw him delivering the Queen's speech. He's a very different person who's known to be outspoken, especially on political views. Can you can you see what this future is going to look like? I think this is the $64 billion question. How does a monarchy under Charles look and, and feel like? This is a man who suffered enormously during the, the death of Diana, the affair with Camilla, and has tried to reinvent his reputation ever since. I think there's a long way to go for Charles. I don't think he's loved and universally trusted by Britain. But of course, the only option is to skip a generation and go straight to William and Kate. And I'm no constitutionalist, but I can't see that happening. Can you? No, definitely not. Um, I think Charles will absolutely be king. I think what I did really love seeing over the Jubilee weekend was him being himself because actually I think that authenticity will stand well with the public and especially with young people. We obviously don't know what's going to happen in history, what he's actually going to have to navigate because of how he steps up to the challenges that get thrown in his way will be very interesting. Um, but I would, I personally would really like to see a lot more from him on climate. I know that Prince William's obviously stepped forward with the Earthshot Prize, but it really is a platform that he should also be owning, I think, on a, on a more vocal level. Yes, Charles has always been seen as an environmentalist uh, with his organic farming and... And highly criticised for his talking of plants and, be and being that voice. And really, he's come of age now, so I feel he, he needs that opportunity. Yes, I think that's an area of strength for Charles, without a doubt. But the royal family generally on the environment has some work to do, I believe, on trust. I mean, the fact that many of the royals have been criticised for flying around the world on private jets... That to the media, to young people, 
suggests a lack of trust that you've got people talking about fighting climate change, but they're jetting off on expensive private jets. It's really difficult. Council culture definitely exists in terms of, you know, if you're going to come out and have a voice on one thing, let's look at your own lifestyle and behaviour. Quite rightly, I would say. Around that. I, I don't know how much... Th- I know that that was recently criticised of Harry and Meghan as they they were jetting off. And I think those things need to be sensitively considered. Absolutely. The research, the latest research from Climate Outreach does show that they are actually some of the most trusted messengers. And I think even, you know, there was the sort of behind the scenes comments that we saw from the Queen, even in the run up to COP, where she said, you know, they seem to talk, but do not do. And there is a real sense that the royal family care and they really do want to see the planet protected and and the people of this country and the world protected. So I do think there is a real opportunity for them to be those trusted messengers. How far they then stray into the world of, you know, political questions around how much we're doing as a government to respond to climate change is a really big question for them. I think they they moved away from that actually on Saturday night at the concert and they very much focused on optimism and that governments and business were stepping forward. As we get more and more into the crisis and we see more and more extreme weather events, where they fall either side of that stool is, is going to be a real challenge for them. Well, this comes right down to what is the role of the monarchy in the 21st century? And it's a weird organisation or brand. And I looked at this in my book because most brands, consumers have a choice of whether or not they buy it. A political party, people have the choice of whether to vote for it or not. But when it comes to the monarchy, we're kind of stuck with them for the moment. So there's no real choice about the monarchy. So their challenge is to prove that they're relevant to modern society and find a role. And I agree with you that possibly... Fighting climate change, tackling mental health, all sorts of social issues are a good area where they can climb above politics and they can show moral leadership. But it's not easy when these people are so rich and so privileged. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose even looking at parenting as an example, you know, and how William and Kate have really tried to position themselves as much more normal hands-on parents than possibly, you know, generations before them have been treated. I think they're very much going to want to present that image. There is still the ceremonies and the traditions that come around, you know, with the white gloves and so forth. But I think they're going to work really hard to break some of that down and, and, and really increase their relevance to every everyday people. What do you think their role is moving forward in terms of uniting communities? I think this is a huge potential role for the royal family. A lot of people had street parties around the country during the past weekend. And I think this is somewhere that the royals can sort of say, let's gather together as a nation, let's gather together as neighbourhoods and communities and show something that's beyond politics. I mean, we saw this during the pandemic, of course, where people showed a new level of community spirit. And I think the royals can harness this because they they have history on their side. But whether they will or not, I don't know. I suppose that's also how they work with lo- local authorities and really do find different communications platforms that actually do reach people on a local level. I know that, you know, I live in the borough of Richmond and I know apparently we had more street parties um, than anywhere else in the UK. 
but you, you didn't ever have that sense that you knew what the deadline was or when how you would engage in your local area. So I think there is a real communications challenge that needs to go beyond just social media to actually look at how you engage people on a local level. I think this is a challenge for Britain, isn't it? Does the government encourage local community culture? Is it the monarchy that encourages that? Is it the councils that encourage that? Or do communities themselves have to organise themselves? But I do think there's something going on here that Britain wants this community level culture and somebody needs to take leadership on it. I think it's a real gap, actually. I grew up with a father who was a very big member of the Round Table, of the Rotary Club. They were absolutely committed to local activity campaigning, raising money for local charities. And as people got older and jobs became, you know, life just became more transient, those sorts of movements and clubs, they're there, but they've died out to a certain extent. And I don't think anything's really filled their place. Yes, this is a huge issue. And I do think the pandemic opened something up for us when we all started applauding the NHS and getting together with our neighbours that we possibly hadn't seen for a long time because we were all working from home, of course. Mm -hmm. And... I love this idea. I think it was presented by a trade union over the past week that the Jubilee weekend is turned into a, a, a community day every year, that we have some sort of celebration of people, possibly uh, key workers who add something to our communities. And there's a chance to celebrate life on a, on a different level. That kind of ongoing legacy would make a huge amount of sense, wouldn't it? And I think to actually then create, you know, an organised strategy around that so people actually knew how to engage and why and what they could do, that could be really phenomenal. And if the monarchy could somehow use their power to get this to happen, that's a real opportunity for them. It's a huge opportunity, I agree. So, Danny, now let's talk about this week's top or flop. In terms of the top, what is it for you? I think the top has to come from the Jubilee celebrations. And I think the top of the last two weeks was definitely Paddington Bear meeting the Queen. A superb, creative, innovative bit of communications. Yeah, I completely agree. And in terms of the flop? Well, I think the flop also came from the weekend. And it also came at St Paul's Cathedral. And this was... Our glorious Prime Minister Boris Johnson's entrance with Carrie, I believe. It was awful. <laughs> and when you have a lot of royalists, traditionalists, presumably a lot of Conservative Party voters actively booing the Prime Minister as he walks up the steps to a what is supposed to be a, a happy celebration, you've got a major reputational problem. And I think... We've seen that in the vote of confidence this week, which I know Boris Johnson won, but the size of the rebellion from his own party was huge. And I think that moment of being booed in St Paul's probably changed a lot of people's minds. I think it was also the confirmation of where the public were. I think there was a sense, wasn't there, that Boris felt that Partygate was behind him, the Sue Gray report had happened, we were now moving on, we had many other things to, to manage. And I think that really told him and the rest of the government that we that we weren't over it and we weren't going to forget what had happened. So 
we know that the voter confidence has happened, but it was a voter confidence from the party and the MPs. It wasn't a vote of confidence from the public. No, and I think things like the booing at St Paul's, much like when Anton Deck criticised Boris Johnson for having the party last year, and a number of other instances which show that this mistrust of Boris Johnson and his behaviour during the pandemic really transcend all social groups and all classes. And this is the problem the Conservative Party has now. It has a leader where mistrust is almost ubiquitous. But for some reason, they still think they can't do without him. So I think the question around Boris Johnson and his current problems, the vote of confidence, and indeed the Jubilee, they're all questions of leadership, aren't they? You know, the Queen has shown tremendous leadership over 70 years in this country. We've had prime ministers who have provided leadership, others that haven't. Currently, it looks as if the country, the Conservative Party, doesn't see Boris Johnson as a leader for the next generation. And this is why the rebellion will only gain credence. So how long do you think he's got? I think Boris Johnson won't survive beyond September. I'm not a political journalist. This is just my judgment looking at communications and and the media generally. But once a party has turned against its leader in these sort of numbers, it's very difficult to have any credibility. And we have a couple of by-elections over the next few weeks, and they will have a big influence on Boris Johnson's future as well. So if the Conservatives lose a couple more seats, he'll be seen as a a poor leader and an electoral loser as opposed to an electoral winner. And when Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher had their own vote of confidence, um, where they did win by a majority, they didn't stay in power for that much longer after that. That's exactly right. So Margaret Thatcher in 1990, she survived the confidence vote, but resigned shortly afterwards because she felt she'd lost the support of the party. And then Theresa May a few years ago, again, won the confidence vote with about two thirds support, which is more than Boris Johnson got last night. Um, But again, she felt that she, she had to go. And, you know, it's very difficult to survive these things. The question is, will Boris ever reach that moment where he feels he has to go? This is a huge question, I think. So the the thing about the Conservative Party is they're quite able to remove people, even if they don't want to go. It's quite a ruthless party. When they feel the leader is no longer an advantage, they move behind the scenes and they remove them. We shall see what comes ahead. So, Danny, thanks so much for this week's Top or Flop. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed our review of last weekend's historic Platinum Jubilee. Next time, excitingly, we will join Danny live in Cannes to find out what's been happening in his first few days there. Who's won? Who's tipped to win a Cannes Lion? What the key themes are that are coming out of what we typically find a really excellent thought-leading events. And hopefully, Danny, some inside gossip, maybe too. These are the sacrifices I have to make, Frankie. I have to go to Cannes so, you know, I can bring you this uh, this insight and um, maybe have the old glass of rosé. But seriously, this is the Cannes Festival of Creativity, the Cannes Lions. So it is a good gathering of uh, 
PR and marketing people from around the world. And hopefully there'll be some real insight into trends in in campaigning and purpose and all of that. Absolutely. Though I do think John and I are going to have to maybe expense a bottle of Lady A to maybe feel like we're there with you. I think I'll allow that. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And we'll see you in Cannes.